I'd like you to stand as we read scripture together today. And this comes from 1 John chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. This is the New Living Translation. It says this, and we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God, and he is eternal life. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Uh, It's great to see you today. Uh, This morning, we're going to continue our series called Swipe Up, and we've been talking about some culturally relevant uh, topics, um, things like how do we navigate a culture that is seemingly anti-Christianity? How do we uh, live faithfully in a fallen world? How do we um, live in harmony with people who believe and think differently than us. Last week we talked in depth about um, sexuality and, and how do we do that well as a church. Uh, in the, the movie that was released in 2019, uh, it's called Dark Waters, Mark Ruffalo plays a man uh, named Robert Billet, who is a corporate defense lawyer uh, from Cincinnati, Ohio. And Billet takes on the case of Wilbur Tennant. Uh, Wilbur is close to Billet's grandmother. Tennant owns a farm in Parkersburg, West Virginia, and he has been searching for someone to take his case. Once a successful farmer, Tennant has now had some 190 cows die uh, for unusual medical conditions. Blackened teeth, uh, bloated organs, tumors, and Tennant is adamant that the DuPont plant that is right next to his home is responsible. Not only has it affected his animals, but Tennant himself has cancer. Billet's research begins as he investigates this issue, and initially he's thinking, I'm doing this as a favor to my grandmother. He had spent his career as a corporate defense lawyer defending DuPont and companies like them. But as he begins to tug on this thread, it all starts to unravel, and his perception of this corporation is changed entirely. He rifles through boxes and boxes of documents and data, looking over past records from the DuPont plant and what they manufacture, and in their records is a chemical called PFOA, sometimes referred to as C8, and it is not in any textbook. It was a chemical created by DuPont to develop Teflon. You probably have heard of that. It is a forever chemical, one that cannot be broken down once created, one that never leaves the bloodstream once it enters it. And DuPont was dumping thousands of pounds of toxic sludge into the water supply that Tenet's animals were drinking. It had made its way into the soil. It had had made its way into the town itself. And thousands of others had also become sick. Pregnant women who worked at DuPont gave birth to babies with startling defects. And DuPont all the while denied wrongdoing. Teflon made them a lot of money. In fact, the products that are produced with PFOA have produced more than $1 billion per year since the 1940s. Billet is noble and courageous, and he goes after this giant of a corporation, trying to defend the innocent people who have been uh, harmed because of this corporate greed. The EPA ends up fining DuPont a a measly $16.5 million, again, in comparison to the $1 billion a year they're pulling in. That's nothing. But they do not stop them from producing this harmful chemical. Billet continues the fight 
And he begins, he, he tries to push every legal button he can, and DuPont eventually settles for $300 million. But the victims can only receive their payout if they can prove that they have been harmed by C8. And the process is, is lengthy and unseemly, and DuPont eventually reneges on their settlement. But Bill, at outrage, does not quit. He begins to take every single individual case to court. The total was over 3,500 legitimate cases. And the first three went to trial, and all of them were awarded multi-million dollar settlements against DuPont. DuPont ends up settling the remaining cases for $671 million. This is a true story. Dark Waters is based on a very true story. It's startling. It's alarming. It makes us angry and outraged that innocent people would be so affected by a large corporation out of their willful ignorance. But it's also telling of our culture. We generally trust large institutions and corporations. We trust that a company that produces nonstick frying pans would have the health of its consumers in mind. We've assumed that's their goal, but corporations aren't set up to keep you safe. They're set up to make money. It's what they do. And much like we might trust a chemical manufacturer to take care of our bodies, we've placed trust in many technology companies to care for our minds. Technology is not good or bad, it just is. It's what we call amoral, not immoral, amoral. The same technology used to create the atomic bomb is now used as the primary means of counteracting cancer within the human body. But whoever holds the keys of that technology has a serious responsibility. You might remember when we began this series a few weeks ago, we started with a few characters, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and they're found in the book of Daniel. We're going to jump back into their lives this morning and take a look at a very famous story. That they lived in a place called Babylon. Babylon is frenetic, chaotic, and it continues to spiral towards its own destruction. It's a lot like our world today. And last time we were there in Babylon, we left our characters doing fine in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar as they demonstrated the power of the God of Israel. And now we're going to pick up our story in Daniel chapter 3. This is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah are their Hebrew names. In their fight against idolatry. Now, because we can't read this whole chapter this morning, I'll, I'll summarize a lot of this, but let's start in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. Trying to quantify this this morning, this would have been uh, uh, probably more uh, mass than a building that was recently torn down, downtown. Uh, you might be familiar with that. This is a big thing. Hard to miss. The decree went out that all the officials were to come and be a part of this consecration ceremony, this dedication of the statue, and that included Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. This was a can't-miss moment. No one could have just been unaware and in verse 4 it says this, this was for people of all races, nations, and languages. Once again, a brilliant move by King Nebuchadnezzar. No one was exempt for confirmation. Bend the knee because you now belong to Babylon. It's a brilliant tactic. Nebuchadnezzar had conquered many people, and they all came into the country with different ideas about the world and different religious practices. And so he introduces a new form of worship to create a new center for all the people he has conquered who are now living in a new civilization. It was indoctrination in its most basic form. 
creating a new center for all of these conquered people. Jumping ahead, and you're familiar with this story, I'm sure, but in verses 11 and 12, the other officials come to King Nebuchadnezzar and they inform him that even though everyone else had bent the knee and worshipped the gold statue, they jump in and say this, the decree states that those who refuse to obey you must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews who you have put in charge of the province of Babylon, of Babylon and they pay no attention to you. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah are thrown into the fiery furnace. A furnace so hot that those who threw them in lost their lives as they tossed them into the flames. They were bound hand and foot and discarded into the flames and everything seemed fine in Babylon when suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement. Verses 24 and 25. He exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire, unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. And then in verse 28, after they'd pulled the men out of the flames, seeing that they were totally unharmed, Nebuchadnezzar said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. And then in verse 29, he says this, and I love this. There is no other God who can rescue like this. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah model sincere faith and incomparable bravery. Their commitment to the worship of the only true God is among the most admirable things we read about in the Bible. God sees fit to rescue them as a demonstration of his own power and ability as the only true God there is and the only one worthy of worship. And I believe, once again, there's a lot to learn in the stories of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Because we're tempted to worship a lot of lesser things. There are many things that compete for our praise, but this morning I, I want to dial in on, on one specific area within the realm of technology. What I believe to be the most dangerous place for us today, and that is digital media. Most of us in the room today probably uh, have at least some experience or are on one social platform, if not many. But I think many of us are probably in the dark as to just how pervasive these platforms are and why it is a deeply spiritual issue. Now, I'm not anti-tech. I, I like technology. I have some Apple products. I like them. They're nice. They work well. If you're not an Apple user, I don't know what's wrong with you, Okay. But I, I like technology. I, I love that I can plug in my headphones and put on a podcast or an audiobook when I go out for a run. I, I, like, it's awesome. I don't have to carry, you know, a Walkman and have a, you know, a cord for my headphones. Like, technology's cool. I like it. And I'm on social media. But there's a lot of things that I've come across lately that have made me really rethink. And this whole series has been a series of messages that I've first had to preach to myself before I can stand up here and talk about them with you. If we want to worship rightly, we must hold our attention tightly. There's a line in this passage of Daniel chapter 3 that sticks out to me. In verse 12, again, when the officials come to King Nebuchadnezzar and they're explaining the wrongdoing of these Jewish men, did you catch what they said? It said, they pay no attention. Quite literally, they do not commit their minds to him. 
Now, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were involved in the happenings of Babylon. They were in charge of the province, and so certainly they had to have interaction with Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't as if they paid no attention to him. It was just a specific kind of attention. They did not commit their mind to him. They did not allow Nebuchadnezzar to determine their thoughts and therefore their actions. They pay you no attention. Attention is key for our time this morning. And I'll propose to you my thesis here in a moment, but did you know that the average American has an attention span of less than eight seconds? Most of us have already received several notifications on our phones. Might be a text from a loved one or somebody who liked your photo on Instagram. Might be an email or some buzz notification from a news outlet. And you've already missed part of what I said because you glanced away. And even when we sit in a room like this, technology aside, when we hear a baby cry out, most of us turn our heads or we lose our train of thought, unless you live in a house with three kids under the age of three, in which case crying is just white noise at this point. But if we want to worship well, we have to realize that where we direct our attention is so important. Whatever has your attention will have your affection. Whatever has your affection will have your devotion. Whatever has your attention, affection, and devotion, that is what you worship. I've done a deep dive into this data this week. Social media is technology, but it is not like all other technology. Former president of Facebook, his name is Sean Parker, said this, Facebook had a goal. How do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? Attention is important. Most social media platforms hire what they call attention engineers, most of whom have experience programming slot machines and Vegas casinos to try to make these products as addictive as possible. Dr. Cal, Cal Newport gives a TED Talk in which he states, it's one thing to go to a slot machine for a few hours, but it's a totally different ballgame to carry that slot machine with you and pull the handle constantly all day long. Social media, back to our DuPont story, social media is dumping thousands of pounds of toxic sludge into your mind every day. These dopamine hits are constant. This continuous flow that must be fed or you probably have some kind of breakdown. The danger of this from a physical standpoint is apparent apparent and obvious. We were never created to be on a constant high. The release of dopamine creates addiction to whatever cues it. Edward Tufte says this, there are only two industries that call their customers users, illegal drugs and software. It is in the best interest of companies like Facebook and Google to hold your attention as long as is possible because they sell advertising. Fixed attention is a marketing dream. Don't make the mistake of believing that these companies don't exist to just make money. They're not engines for social good. They're money machines, massive ones, ones that outproduce the GDP of most countries in our world today, hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars a year. The number of companies that are approaching the $1 trillion valuation in our world today is astounding. And here's what's crazy. You can use them for free. Friends, if the platform is free, it means that you are the product. 
Your attention is the product that the platform sells. It's what they, cre- they excuse me, it's what they were created to capture. Once they have your attention, they develop an affection or really an addiction. Once they have your attention and your affection, then they'll have your devotion. And whatever has your attention, affection, and devotion, that is what you worship. This is our 90-foot tall statue, one that isn't missed by hardly anyone. If Facebook were a country, it would be the fourth largest in the world. Verse 4, this is for people of all races, nations, and languages. This is true of our consumption of online content. There is no untouched demographic when it comes to social media. No longer is social media just a young person's game. When Facebook came out, I was in the middle of high school. And I didn't know anybody older than 25 that had a Facebook. Now I don't know anybody younger than 25 who has a Facebook. Facebook, friends, I'm sorry, it's the old people social media. It just is. I have no students in my youth group right now who have a Facebook. They're on different apps. But you are. There's no untouched demographic. It covers covers the gamut of our world. It isn't an American thing. Social apps are wildly popular all over the world, especially in Asian countries. This is widespread worldwide. It speaks to an essential component of humanity. But we are hardwired for worship. We've talked a lot about this word culture in this series, and the, the word culture comes from three Latin roots. They are colere, which has to do with agriculture, colonus, which has to do, has to do with the idea of inhabiting someplace, and then this word cultus, which has to do with worship. It's where we get our word cult from. A culture encapsulates all three of those ideas. We as a people long for worship of something outside and above ourselves. In his book, Plugged In, Daniel Strange says this, our culture is the stories we tell that express meaning about the world. The most troubling part of all of this is that digital media has rewired who and how we worship. We have a significant worship issue in our culture. Our cultus is enraptured with the screen. Whatever honors the impulse receives our attention and affection. We worship what we hold in our hands. Quite literally, your brain can be programmed, and it is being programmed. Justin Rosenstein says this in the documentary, The Social Dilemma. You may have watched this documentary before. If you haven't, I would encourage you to do so. If you don't want to sleep tonight, that's a great idea. He says this, two billion people will have thoughts they didn't intend to have because a designer at Google said, this is how notifications work on that screen that you wake up to in the morning. Google can make you think what they want you to think. They can make you want to buy what they want you to buy. Every big tech company does this. It's how they make money. And it's not conspiracy, it's reality. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the Apostle Paul says this, don't copy. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by how? Changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. 
But we aren't letting God change the way we think. We're letting social apps and Google searches change the way that we think. Again, this isn't conspiracy. This is basic human psychology. Pavlov's dog salivated when it heard the bell ring. And our minds release a chemical called dopamine when we get a notification on our phone. Our pleasure receptors are on constant overload. Again, life was not meant to be lived on a constant high. The chemical, dopamine, that's released, it bonds us to behaviors. And it creates addictions. You have one brain. When you train your brain for super fast feedback in the form of dopamine hits on likes, shares, retweets, you are debilitating it. Almost every researcher in this field would say it is not only possible, but likely you will do permanent damage to your brain by being glued to a screen. Life is all about the long game. So when our prayers aren't answered in an instant, you will, because we've been psychologically programmed, you will end up hating the only real God there is and trade him in for one you can control. One of the biggest reasons digital media is unlike any other technology is because of something called AI, artificial intelligence. It's now baked into every device and every platform we log into. So you're not just learning a new technology when you open up something new. It's learning you, and frankly, it does a better job of it. AI is what allows social media companies to tailor specific advertising and marketing to the individual user. It's impressive software, but it comes with an incredibly troubling truth. AI's sole goal on social apps is to keep you in the just one more hit phase. Like a drug addict seeking substance, AI tailors dopamine triggers to keep you stuck in a loop. This is extremely intentional. AI doesn't know what's moral or ethical. It can't. It doesn't have the capacity to. Kathy O'Neill, who's a mathematician and data scientist, says this, we are allowing technologists to frame this as a problem that they're equipped to solve in regards to building more AI to combat the problem. When testifying before the United States Congress, Mark Zuckerberg said these exact things. The solution to our problem is to create more AI that can solve our problem. AKA, I don't know how to stop this. <laughs> O'Neill says, that's a lie. People talk about AI as if it will know truth. Artificial intelligence is not going to solve these problems. AI cannot solve the problem of fake news. Google doesn't have an option of saying, oh, is this conspiracy? Is this truth? Because they don't know what truth is. They don't have a proxy for truth that's better than a click. Your choices change how technology works. What is repeated is rewarded. And the algorithm adapts to whatever the user accepts. So AI has learned enough about all of us to keep us in this constant state of mindlessness numbing our neural pathways with enough dopamine to keep us hooked. Our attention is now fixed and fixated. Friends, this is a deeply spiritual issue because whatever has your attention will have your affection. Whatever has your affection will have your devotion. And whatever has your attention, affection, and devotion, that is what you worship. We have some new gods that we now worship on the altar of social media. Affirmation. Tell me I'm enough. 
Tell me I'm pretty. Tell me I'm good. Tell me I'm better. Likes, retweets, shares, comments, pins, posts. The trouble with affirmation is that we always need more. Information. I want to know everything. If I can just know enough, then I'll have nothing to be afraid of, and I can control every outcome of my situation. Friends, when COVID hit, we began to research everything, and all of us put on the hat of expert in the field, thinking, I read this, and I saw this, and this doctor said this. We thought, if I can just know all the information, I can outthink the virus. Gratification. I want to feel something. Online shopping, streaming content, impulsive behaviors, pornography addictions, the list goes on and on and on. And when we look to the internet for satisfaction, we will find cheap imitations that give us a feeling in the immediate, but leaving a worse feeling in the ultimate. And distraction. I want to feel nothing. I'm stressed, I'm tired, I'm weary, so I want to go someplace and not think anymore. Mindless scrolling, endless time spent reading or listening to things of little meaning or no consequence. Nothing constructive, nothing helpful, just empty, mindless wandering in the wilderness of the world wide web. These are the new gods that we now worship, and I'm willing to bet almost everything I have that you worship one of them, if not all of them. Affirmation, information, gratification, distraction. These are the gods that we serve. Technology experts have stated that the amount of recorded information generated from the dawn of humanity to 2003 was in the order of five exabytes of data. Whereas an exabyte indicates one quintillion bytes. From 2003 to 2010, we generated an additional five exabytes of data. So dawn of time till the year 2003, five exabytes of data. In the next seven years, another five exabytes of data. By 2018, 90% of the world's data has been generated in the previous two years alone. And it continues to turn over and over and over at an exponential rate. I, re I referenced this author earlier, Daniel Strange, in his book, Plugged In. He says this, the brain doesn't download bytes. We receive information through stories. It's the unit our hearts and minds understand. No wonder it's been said that the greatest competitor for the company Netflix is not another TV streaming service. It's the human need for sleep. It's estimated that we will spend seven years of our lives watching TV. This is an average. And five years of our lives on social apps. Most Americans average 10 hours of media per day. The reality is we are embodied creatures. We are souls with flesh on. We're not computers. And our capacity to handle information is critically flawed because we cannot process things on a static level. We receive information in the form of story. It's how almost everything in our world is communicated to us. Humans need story. But we find meaning and purpose in it. Story motivates us to act or to change or to extend compassion or to provide relief or help. But we're only capable of carrying the load of so many stories. 
And because our souls speak the language of story, we are bombarded, overloaded, inundated with story. And we seek therapy from the gods we've grown accustomed to consulting. Stories of grief, pain, despair, hurt, longing, unrest, death. We're told everything about everyone's story all of the time. And we aren't capable of carrying that weight. We are communal creatures who are intended for close-knit relationships. Not constant knowledge of everything that happens on a global scale. It's impossible to care about everyone's everything all of the time, but we feel like we're supposed to. That we aren't moral if we don't care. This lack of capacity leads us back to these gods that we worship. Affirmation, information, gratification, and distraction. But none of these things, none of these lesser things lead us to the rest that we so desperately want. Listen again to what Nebuchadnezzar says when he witnessed the miraculous event that took place in the furnace. Daniel 3.29. No other God rescues like this. Friends, there's no substitute for the worship of the true God. Not a God you've created or can hold in your hand, but one that is powerful beyond imagination. Who is furiously persistent in redeeming the world who is impossible to understand, who is enthroned for all time. The only place we will find true rest is when we replace our idols with God himself. Jesus models this habit of rest for us. The text says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. He unplugged from all the stories that surrounded him. He centered himself on God. He gave all of his grief, care, concern, anxiety, and suffering over to God. And Jesus felt and experienced everything that it meant to be human. Jesus was around some of the most sad stories in his world at the time. Jesus wept over the death of his friend Lazarus, even knowing that he was about to go and resurrect him. Why? Because he was an embodied person. He was human. And he processed all of this through story. And the story of death is painful and difficult to bear. We need rest from things that would rob our attention from God. No one rescues like Him. We try to find our rescue, our relief, our rest in so many lesser things, but they are all counterfeit gods that cannot bring us the life that we long for. Just a moment, we're going to get into some more practical stuff. My encouragement to everyone is to rest. As a church this week, we're going to embark on a fast, on a fast from social media. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. And I've already done this. Started this on Monday. Delete all the social apps off of your phone. (gasps) It's going to be okay. Turn off all notifications. Unplug. Get out of the impulse-driven mindset. When there's nothing to go to here, You don't have to keep constantly looking at it, picking it up, consulting it for something that it can never provide. I'll talk more about that here in just a moment. But we want to, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. We're going to begin this tomorrow morning. And I'm going to ask that you continue this fast until we conclude worship next week. Our attention is so fixated on lesser things. And whatever has your attention will have your affection. 
Whatever has your affection will have your devotion. And whatever has your attention, affection, and devotion, that is what you worship. Friends, our our phones, technology, media, none of that's going to go away. It won't. It will keep evolving. It will keep improving. It will keep getting more intrusive and not less. These things won't go away. But hear me, you can. There's never a point. There's never a point where we can't simply set it down and walk away. There was a study released by the University of Michigan School of Public Health this past week. Maybe you saw it. And it contrasts um, various items of food. And you probably can't read this, uh, but let me just point out a few things to you. Of course, there's things like fruits and vegetables over here that are healthy for you. Nuts and seeds are good for you. But the two biggest outliers on either side are a bit startling. If you notice over here, they quantified healthy foods by those that detract and add to the lifespan of an average human. And according to their study, eating a hot dog takes 35 minutes off of your life. You know that scene in The Princess Bride where they're in the pit of despair? <laughs> Not to 50, right? I don't know. If you're at a hot dog eating contest, that's kind of being in the pit of despair. The other startling one is peanut butter and jelly sandwiches add 33 minutes to your life. There you go. I have a good friend who ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich every day for lunch from elementary school all the way through high school. She'll probably live till Jesus comes back. <laughs> Some of you are rethinking what you're going to go have for lunch today. But quite literally, all of these things rob us of life. They're taking your time. On average, on average, Americans will spend five years of their lives on social media. I don't want to ever look my kids in the eye and say, man, I wish I would have put down my phone and spent more time with you. I don't ever want that to be true of me. So what do we do? We have to recognize a few things this morning. That the, the world will become increasingly digital, more frenetic and complex. And we cannot count on tech companies to fix these big issues. Because they won't. God created human beings to create and cultivate. And rather than using the tools of technology to create, cultivate, to contribute to the world, we now use them only to consume. And I understand it's a bit silly to preach the, this message about the dangers of social media, and in next service we'll broadcast this live on Facebook.com. But here's what we must learn to do. We must learn to be discerning. We have, we have to learn new rhythms for learning and living in a digital world because we are Jesus people who live in a fallen world and we cannot bury our heads in the sand. It is good to get away and unplug and to rest and reset, to get out of the cycle of social media. And maybe for some of us, this is a permanent thing and it probably should be. I'm considering it. But we cannot unplug from culture. Nor can we retreat from the battle that we've been born to fight. Social media is as much a mission field as anything else. And as Christians, we're called to create and cultivate. 
I love what Tim Keller says when he says, what we create as Christians should both resonate with and defy culture. So we need to get out of our impulsivity and into intentionality. We need to create patterns for engaging online that that do not end with every ounce of our attention being robbed and our worship following suit. For most of us, this begins with a hard break, like the fast. And for many, we need to continue that for a month or more. But then we need to learn new, wise rhythms of re-engagement. Friends, it's, it's telling that none of the executives of these massive tech companies let their children anywhere near social media or even screens in general, usually. They're not allowed in their home. Their kids aren't allowed to have online profiles. So parents, let me just speak practically to you for just a moment. It really is time to reclaim control over the devices in your house. Devices are discipling your students. Google is God. Any question they have, they can go ask of a platform and they'll receive an answer. We have a responsibility as parents to raise our children well in the way of Jesus so that their faith would be robust and resilient and it's capable of handling all the conflict and that they will have the fortitude to withstand the future that they face. I know many of you are looking at me thinking, laughing in your head and thinking, oh, we're, we're too far gone. This isn't possible. But no other God rescues like ours. And when we turn to him and say, God, I want to honor you. And you know how excited that makes him? Do you know how thrilled he would be to hear that from you, his child? God, as a parent, I want to honor you. Would you empower me with your spirit? to raise kids in a way that doesn't lead them to idolatry. So here here are three practical things. Some of you might say these are radical things. I just think they're practical. And I'd encourage every parent in the room to implement these things today because I really do believe the future of your children depends on your ability to disciple your student. Number one, all devices should be out of the bedroom by a set time every night. Can you imagine? Number two, your students really shouldn't have any social media until high school at least. Most people would recommend the age of 16. I know a lot of you have students who have social media already. And again, I'm not anti-tech. I don't think all of these things are innately sinful. I just know that they're robbing the attention of our young people as much as, if not more, robbing our attention every day. Number three, you need to work out a time budget with your children as to how much they use screens. You'd be really surprised by what they say. Again, some of you are going to look at me sideways and say, "Ah, I can never do this. My kids will hate me. Man, just... In all sincerity, humility, and in love, parents, can I remind you your job is not to have your child like you? Just really. And they might (laughs) for a short time. I mean, raise your hand if you've never been the kid who yelled at your parent in immature anger, I hate you, right? We all did this at one point. But they will love you for it later. 
Joe Madden, who was the manager of the Chicago Cubs when they won the 2016 World Championship, says this, if I'm honest with you, you might not like me for a day or two. But if I lie to you, you're going to hate me forever. Joe is really good at having hard conversations. I think there's some wisdom in that. And friends, we've, man, this is, again, we've gone an inch deep in a deep, deep pit. We've mentioned nothing of cyberbullying, abduction and abuse of young people and their involvement in online chat rooms, rampant pornography addiction that extends to well over 70% of young people today. Or how about just this? The inability of most young people to have an intrapersonal conversation with another human being. If you care about your child, I think you'll take this seriously. Here's the most startling place for me, and this is getting more real every moment. From 2010 to 2011, the numbers of non-fatal self-harm held steady. But from that point, we're up 62% for girls aged 15 to 19 for self-harm. We're up 189% for girls aged 10 to 14 for self-harm. In terms of suicide, for girls aged 15 and 19, we're up 70%. And for girls aged 10 to 14, we're up 151%. Suicide is now the second leading cause of death of young people in the United States. None of us would soak our kids' bedroom in gasoline and toss them a box, a box of excuse me, matches and say, have fun. But when we dismiss our duty to parent in the digital space, this is what is happening. And here's the reality. You can do this. God has equipped you. He's empowered you. He's given you your children intentionally to raise them rightly in the Lord and in the way of Jesus. And this includes placing safeguards to ensure that their worship will be directed in the right place. For everybody, we've compiled a list of resources. They're at the top of the sermon notes in the Church Center app. And they'll also go out in our email update this week, which you won't get a notification for on your phone. Right? But I'd encourage you to check those out. There's some books, there's some blog posts, some things that will probably be helpful for you. There's some things that are just, just for parents as well. I would encourage you to invest some time in getting better at beating what robs your attention. This is how we started our time in the Word this morning. This is 1 John 5, 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and He has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God and He is eternal life. And I love how John concludes his letter. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. In a culture where everything is instantaneous, it is increasingly more difficult to worship an eternal God. So, I would really encourage you to take some time away, to rest, to reset, to unplug. Some of us uh, will take time out of our year to observe diets, 
We'll do something called Whole30. And Daniel suggested this week, maybe you should do a Wholesome30. Get out of the matrix. (laughs) Take some time. But here's probably the best practical wisdom that I've heard in this area. And it's just this simple pattern. One hour per day, one day per week, one weekend per month, one week per year. Don't get online. Don't get on a screen. Everybody can block out an hour a day, and it shouldn't be while you're asleep. Everybody can find a day a week to rearrange their calendar to create space in their life. All of us can find a weekend a month, and and most of us can find a week per year to unplug, to reset, to recenter our attention. Friends, we're, we're hardwired for worship. And like we said, culture doesn't have a center. But Christians do. Whatever has your attention will have your affection. Whatever has your affection will have your devotion. Whatever has your attention, affection, and devotion, that's what you worship. So I'm going to invite you to stand up right now. We're going to worship together because there's no other God who rescues like him.